Welcome to Awaken, a podcast from the Rubin Museum of Art that uses art to explore the dynamic path to enlightenment and what it means to wake up. I'm Tani Katenjian, executive producer of Awaken, and because of the amazing response we've received for Awaken Season 2, we wanted to extend the conversations and broaden the experience and understanding of the five mind states we discuss in the series. Pride, attachment, envy, anger, and ignorance. Awaken is inspired by the Mandala Lab at the Rubin, an installation based on the Vairochana Mandala, an artwork that represents the path to enlightenment. Along with the installation, the Rubin also has an ongoing live series, Brainwave, where two people, one of whom is a scientist, are in conversation on a given topic. In this case, the topics are the mind states we just mentioned. In this episode, we have excerpted parts of those conversations and interwoven them with neuroscientists Tracy Dennis Tawari's understanding of what each of these emotions are. You may remember Tracy. Her insights led us through each of the seven episodes of Awaken, and here she is again, doing the same. Let's begin with pride. In the teachings of the Vairochana Mandala, pride means placing yourself on a higher or lower plane than others, exhibiting arrogance or low self-worth. That's what is damaging. For the conversation around pride, the Rubin invited cognitive neuroscientist Dr. Philip Corlett and performer and artist Jean Grey to discuss their experiences with pride. Here, Tracy Dennis Tawari starts us off with her understanding. With pride, I'd say, you know, you, you have to have a, as a starting point the appraisal that I am a self, right? I'm an individual self, and a self uh, that has agency in the world is, is a valued self. Dr. Philip Corlett. One of the things I study is how we build our sense of self and situations where that might break down. I've tried to study from various different points of view, people who unfortunately get brain damage and, and lose aspects of their sense of self. And it really speaks to that kind of constructive process that our, our brains do that really the self is a story that you tell yourself and others in order to make all of these things that are incident upon us, all of these attachments that we have, make sense. So you are appraising in the moment, is this sense of myself as a positive, powerful self, is it being threatened or supported? That's the appraisal part. Like, just how is the world, uh, you know, connecting with my sense of self? Performer and artist, Jean Grey. That's the interesting thing. I now identify as non-binary. During my rap career, I uh, identified as a woman, or as they would call me, a female. It is a competitive world. It is based on braggadocio, Mm -hmm. based on I'm the best. And I thoroughly enjoyed that about it. And I never looked at it like, I'm enjoying myself here on this stage or on this song. My mission was to destroy. It was to destroy the imaginary people. It was to destroy the other people who were on the song. Right. I ne- if someone was like, you're opening for them, I was like, they are closing for me. The action readiness tendency depending on how you appraise that situation, is how can I reestablish my, my sense of integrity and, 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 you know, a self that, again, is, that is valued and powerful. So when we are in a prideful state, depending on how we view our sense of self and our value, we do things to sustain, you know, at, sometimes at any cost, that sense of being a valued self. As a woman... Mm-hmm. That was not acceptable. And I'm like, well, that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. It was always um, that I should be grateful to be there. And I think just as an other in general, 
uh, as a, a, a black woman, a mixed woman, an immigrant. I was raised Muslim. I'm like, listen, I got all the others down. How, at what point do I have to stop being like, I'm so, oh, thank you, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And because I never presented that, and my only presentation was, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm better than you. It was never accepted. Mm-hmm. It did not go well. Sometimes society forces individuals to exhibit pride in specific ways because of discrimination and judgment, which impacts one's worldview and way of navigating the world. Sometimes one's pride has to be overinflated in order to receive the acceptance and acknowledgement that should be applied to everyone equally. Making your mark and claiming your territory, whether it be in a place or a career, sometimes takes some posturing, a sense that you know what you're doing and you're the strongest. Fake it till you make it. Be proud and then have reason to be so. Dr. Philip Corlett. See, it's interesting. So I've approached science kind of similarly, Mm. believe it or not. There was this feeling, sort of apocryphal story that perhaps people tell you when you first go into prison that you're supposed to find the biggest guy on the yard Mm -hmm. and hit him as hard as you can to prove that you're something and that you have something to say. And I've often tried to chase the big ideas or the new territories or the things that people thought were outside of the realm of science or something that we ought not to have something to say about. And and I've tried that and, and it does become exhausting. It's interesting to try and sort of stake out new territory and pursue new things, and it's really exciting. But at some point, you know, you've kind of got to stop innovating, you know, and hand over the torch to other people. And I think that's the point where I'm at now, where my job isn't to push me as the brand forward anymore. It's to train the next generation of people who are coming through and, and sort of point them to the areas where I perhaps went wrong or slipped up or made the wrong choices. Um, I'm still very proud of what Mm -hmm. I've done, but in a sense, I'm also kind of over it and don't want to be known as the guy who does that so much anymore. How how many, like, rough times did you have in those thoughts? Like, I know it, it really in my heart, I was like, I know it's not me. I know I'm amazing. But at a certain point, you're like, but what, what if I'm not yeah. yeah. And then that leaks over into so many other mm-hmm. things. Yeah. No, I definitely, you know, submitted grant after grant application every time, you know, three times a year, every time they're coming back, not even discussed. Like, we're not even going to dignify this with comments, Jeez. you know? And, uh, and it wears you down. It is, yeah. It really does. Lot. Uh, and it really eats into your sense of self. And so, so my response was, let's try and do the craziest thing that no one expects and pull it off and show that I'm a sort of force to be reckoned with or someone to be taken Same. seriously. So, so since then, all my grants get funny. Good. <laughs> well, I, not all of them, no, but you know, oh, no. <laughs> more, than, more than none, so... Trailblazing of the sort that Philip and Jean have done has the aim of leveling the playing field. And it needs to be accompanied by a level of responsibility, a willingness to not only make your mark, but also allow others, ultimately, to make theirs. This sort of achievement and pride should not be at the expense of others. The antidote to pride is suspending judgment, to approach things with the absence of ego. Also being like, hey, if you're not going to let me in the club, like, okay, I'll stop trying to get in the club. Like, I'll go down the street and then I'll, I'll build a whole new club. But the idea that, and I think that happened to me very early on, um, probably before I got my first tattoo, mm-hmm. we're just living in the world and being like, the rules don't apply. So if the rules don't apply to me and I'm invisible and you don't want me here, so then I can do whatever I want, right? Right. And yeah, even, even in that sense, my first, my first tattoo was very small. My second tattoo was this giant dragon on my neck. And I was about 19 years old. And everyone was like, what are you doing? 
And I was like, don't worry. I understand the world is going to catch up. I live in a non-linear, I'm, I'm in the future. Just don't worry about it. <laughs> and you were right. Yeah. But I'm always telling people, like, it's not about me being a superhero or me being up here. The idea is for all of us to be superheroes, mm -hmm. all of us to have that confidence. Right. And it doesn't mean anyone has to be lower. Mm -hmm. How do we stop people from thinking that this has to happen instead of yeah. this happening? Mm -hmm. So just some amazing advice that my PhD advisor gave me, which is that you're running your own race, right? You never have to outrun anybody else and comparisons are always gonna sort of trip you up. And you don't know the race that anyone else is running. Right. You think you do, but you really don't. And we see this in economics and neuroeconomics, right? Like money doesn't create happiness. Well, it does to a certain Amen. point, yeah. right? <laughs> but then when you reach that point, there's always someone above there's you another, who has a little bit more point. and then it just yeah. keeps going. And so whilst it is our way of being in the world to draw comparisons with people around us, it, that's the thing that, that trips us up and, and gets us in, in trouble. It can be motivating, right? Yes. Yeah, I think, again, to get back to that point I was making earlier, it's really important not to pull the ladder up after you, but actually to make sure that whoever's coming up next learns from your mistakes, takes the path that maybe you didn't and really benefits from it. And I think that's a really hard lesson mm. to learn because it doesn't feel right. Like if you had to struggle to get where you are, it feels I think... weird to help others, but I think it, it actually helps more in the long run. If pride has this assessment, right, this appraisal of who you are, what is valuable about you, what power you have in the world to do things, um, and then um, this sort of action readiness to, to sustain that sense of self. And are the things that I'm prideful about, will they survive? You know, are they going to survive? Are they sustainable? Are they meaningful? Will I, like, will it have mattered that I was in this world? Do I have to knock down others to feel pride in myself? Or maybe, um, you know, success means helping others succeed, you know? And so you start to have those sorts of opportunities and um, either internal discussions or even external discussions. So I think of pride as um, this, this fraught emotion, but one that has, if we can bear to look at ourselves and really face what we're prideful about, uh, to be an emotion that has incredible potential for transformation. And that is the idea with the Vairochana Mandala. It's a visual representation of the path of transformation, using the energy of difficult emotions, like pride, as a pathway to compassion for and connection to others and yourself, to lead a life where judgment of oneself and others is suspended and not clouded by one's egoic view of the world. While pride may seem quite different from attachment, when pride is misplaced, it can be an attachment to a sense of self, an attachment to how you want to be viewed by others or even by yourself. Of course, attachment isn't all bad. Like all the mental states, it's about balance. We need attachment in our lives, particularly in our infancy. Attachment trips us up when we expect things to stay the way they are because as this whole series illustrates, if there's one thing we can surely rely on, it's change. Here, Tracy shares her understanding of attachment from a neuroscientific perspective. When I think attachment, I start with early child caregiver attachments about this bond that very naturally and um, automatically will form between a primary caregiver and a child, and any caregiver and a child. And in psychology, we often actually characterize that attachment um, as secure or insecure. In the Brainwave series, the two people discussing attachment are Pulitzer Prize-winning theater writer Michael R. Jackson and Dr. Hedy Kober, an associate professor of psychology at Yale University, whose studies specialize 
certain cravings. Very apt, since another way attachment shows up in our lives is through our attachment to things, objects, food, technology. Here is Dr. Kober speaking about attachment from the perspective of craving. One of the things that I think are superbly interesting about humans is that we were all essentially born to crave, right? The systems in our brain that give rise to craving are the systems in our brain that allow us to pursue the kinds of food that we need to survive and pursue sex. And when everything works well and we live in the same kind of environment that we did maybe some tens of thousands of years ago, it's really functional, actually, to run after the um, kinds of things that are high fat and high sugar and give us nutrients and sex because we don't get a lot of them and having a strong desire to keep us motivated is actually really, really helpful. Michael R. Jackson is familiar with craving. As he will admit, he's an all-or-nothing kind of person. And this certainly made itself apparent during the pandemic. Something I learned about myself during the pandemic was that uh, when a, a, a sort of global stressor like that happens, my instinct actually was to sort of take care of myself more than I thought that I would. Not, and I'm not necessarily even saying it in a healthy way. I'm just saying it like my instinct was not to like help everyone else. Mm. My instinct was like stay alive, like or by any means necessary. And for me, what that meant was like eating and drinking every single thing in sight. <laughs> One very common attachment that many of us have, maybe all of us, is to food. Not to sustenance, but to certain foods. That little piece of chocolate at night. That fried chicken or burger you know isn't great for you, but you just want. And sometimes that can get a little out of hand. Because really, it's our attachment to what feels good. And it can get tricky because being attached to feeling good can lead to behaviors that aren't very healthy. Most people crave some set of things pretty consistently. People for whom alcohol can be a part of their life often crave alcohol, at least sometimes under some circumstances. Um, In epidemiological studies, between 98 and 100% of people say that they crave some forms of food sometimes. This should surprise none of you. People often have a relationship that is craving-like with things that they either have experienced previously and experienced some pleasure for, some pleasure with, that they have enjoyed, that they found rewarding, um, or things that they imagine will be rewarding. And I'm now thinking specifically about the kind of positive craving that we're talking about. But also a cognitive component. If I have this, I'll feel better. If I don't have it, I'll feel worse. Food companies know this. This is why they made food commercials and food ads. Um, But also other kinds of parts in our body, our heart starts beating a little bit more quickly. Sometimes we get our palms get a little sweaty. Um, And of course, the motivational component, which is associated with the impetus to act on these thoughts and feelings. And that's pretty universal. There's no question that another big attachment we all struggle with is our attachment to our devices. It's a lot like the attachment to food, that that need to feel good, sometimes at any cost. And it can be a real struggle, because our devices are often an escape from what is right here. A sense that what is right here just isn't good enough. When we step away from those attachments, to food, to phones, we can start to see things differently, and maybe, if we're lucky, become less attached. Well, I had this interesting experience of I was in St. Lucia two, th- t- like three days ago, two days ago, and while I was there, I dropped my phone, and like dirt got in the charger, and so then I couldn't charge it, so then my phone died, and so I literally couldn't be on it, and it was great. <laughs> um, I'm trying to like figure out how to get back into what I did as a teenager, which is that I used to read before bed. And I'm, and I'm trying to do it now, and I'm finding that it's very difficult now because my attention span has been so stolen by this, like, this horrible device. The desire to become distracted by the present moment, scroll through Instagram, check your email, eat a donut, whatever your escape may be, is normal. How do we allow for these attachments without letting them take over our lives. Craving in itself, I don't think of it as anything bad at all. I think craving moves us, again, towards all of the useful behaviors we have to do, like feed ourselves and take care of loved ones and um, move us towards things that we think are important in life. Craving, especially if we kind of take a step back and think about craving in the broader sense, right? 
Craving is really any kind of internal movement towards or away, right? And in that kind of context, of course, we need craving. We need motivation to do lots of things. I think that the place where, as humans, we really run into uh, what we might call a little bit of trouble is when we start wanting things that might be good for us in the moment, good for us in the short term, and really damaging uh, in the long term, where the math, the, the global math might not really make sense for our well-being, but in the immediate moment, it still creates that learning that goes, mm, I want more of that. I think of freedom as being perfectly, perfectly okay with everything exactly as it is in this moment. Um, and in that sense, um, that piece can be brought, for example, to a moment of craving. I might really want to be doing something or consuming something, and I can notice that, not necessarily react to that, find joy and peace in exactly this moment, exactly as it is. What we expose ourselves to, how we spend our time, that typically is what grows. Where we put our attention, that grows. And so if I put my attention for as many minutes of the day on this moment being glorious as it's presenting itself, completely outside of my control in its beautiful glory, um, it is highly likely that I will um, increase my skill of being here. I think about attachment as, you know, it's, it's, this, it's, a, it's a cliche, if you love something, set it free. I think there's something really profound about just simply thinking about how do we stay connected to people um, without uh, owning them? And and when we when we approach people that way and these connections and our attachments, like a child, like with our children, that you know, oh my goodness, talk about a a challenge and a and a um, and a and a opportunity for growth. Like, how do we stay attached to these children that we love so much, um, but give them freedom that allows them to not uh, simply be serving to meet our needs and our scarcity and our, so I think there's, that's what I think about when I think about a, attachment in the best sense of the word, that we can, we can dig into that love and, and use it um, in, in ways that grow ourselves and others uh, and don't shrink them down to just fit uh, the needs and the, and the emptiness that we have. Emotions are energy. And whether attachment presents itself as an attachment to a person or as an attachment to a thing, that attachment is an energy, one that can be harnessed and transformed. As Tracy says, we can take that attachment, that love, and use it to grow. The wisdom one can get from attachment is what the mandala teaching calls the wisdom of discernment. It's the ability to see things from a new vantage point, to see how our attachment, desire, and sense of craving is powering our behavior. If we can suspend our attachments, we can begin to build connection, compassion, and empathy for ourselves and others. Another one of the emotions we discuss in Awaken and is illustrated in the mandala is envy. And in the context of connection, envy may be one of the most challenging emotions because as Tracy Dennis Tawari says, Envy is a breaker of, of social connection. And it takes many forms. For one, I, I think of it as sort of a, a clawing, kind of a, this, this kind of consumeristic, this wanting, this, this, it's this sort of emotion. In the Brainwave series, the two people discussing envy are comedian Janine Garofalo and professor and psychologist Dr. Kevin Oxner. Janine started with discussing where her envy lies. And while she doesn't have much of it in her life, it simply isn't her character to be envious. She pointed to something so many of us feel and what Tracy referred to as consumerist wanting. Seems like regardless of how well-known you are or how much you have, it's natural to want more. Everything around us, from commercials to social media, implies that we don't have enough. More is better. So it makes sense for Janine to want more than what she has. I envy great apartments. So I, honestly, when I walk the dogs at night, I'll look in windows. And I always wish I lived, I think it's 43 Fifth Avenue. There's a building. Oh, I envy and covet. But I don't begrudge them. I'm not mad at them for living in there. I'm happy for them for living there. So 
I, I see it in that way, like I wish I had. I wish, a lot of times I wish I was a different kind of person. I wish I had worked harder and could have that apartment or something like that. Of course, envy is that there is something of value um, that I need, um, that someone has, and that I don't have. <laughs> so, so it's this, um, it's again, it's a value proposition. It's that there's something um, that I need, but why do we need it when it comes to envy? I think it again comes back to this self appraisal like we saw before, where there's, there's a notion that if I have this thing, it will contribute to my self-worth and my, and my agency and autonomy and ability to have, and to, you know, my empowerment to do things in the, in the world. Janine's wistful coveting of New York apartments, of wanting something that someone else has, is one form of envy. But some envy can have more of an edge, a sense of contempt, even resentment or jealousy. This type of envy can breed a sense of competition that divides rather than unites. There's a block such that someone has that thing or they have it and, if, and I want it or they have a, a way of getting it that I haven't figured out how to achieve. And so what envy drives is much more competitive types of behavior rather than collaborative. Neuroscientist and psychologist Dr. Kevin Oxner is chair of the psychology department at Columbia University. When you think about jealousy or envy mm-hmm. from the perspective of a theorist, like what are these emotions and, mm-hmm. and why do we have them? They're really about the difference between you and what you have and what someone else has. Mm-hmm. So jealousy is about interpersonal relationships, at least when you're trying to parse them apart. Uh, envy is about objects, attainment, but it's really, it's the same kind of emotion. It's like a triangle. It's an emotion triangle. I think when adults retain jealousy and envy, it perhaps is about, they think deep down they're not good enough. They're yeah. Somehow they're being victimized or not good enough. It is from a, a, a sense of lack. So sometimes we're envious when we really do have something in our life that we're struggling with and we see other people have it. And we're like, oh, you know, I, I, you know, I'm ha- you know, even when it's sort of tinged with like, that's my friend, I'm happy for them, but God, that, I wish I had that success or that thing or that whatever, right? There's, there's, there's that. But even people who have everything in the world, <laughs> ostensibly, right? Um, as you were saying, they can still, it's not just about things or achievement. It's about this, this kind of fundamental sense of lack that you really can't fill up with anything. I think that's absolutely right. I think almost all human suffering is rooted in a fundamental sense of personal inadequacy and insecurity. Mm-hmm. And so much of life, especially early on, is about trying to securely attach yourself to other people. Mm-hmm. Not to be attached to things inappropriately, but to be attached to relationships right. where there's a caring and compassionate relationship. There's a whole class of emotions that are about the way in which you evaluate yourself with respect to others. So embarrassment, shame, guilt are kind of in this same family. Uh, Envy, pride, um, and jealousy are in this same family. And when you experience them, they're about the comparison of yourself to something else. In many ways, it's, you know, it's, again, it's a natural emotion. It's one that at least when we listen to it, it lets us understand what we value and then evaluate whether it's a good thing to value. Um, But... But what, what it does in a way, though, is it short circuits some of our most powerful tools, uh, which are tools of social connectedness and social bonding. I have this very vivid memory that when our second child was about three or four months old and our daughter was two and a half, she was excited. She's like, can I have him on my lap? And we put Rafa on our daughter Red's lap on a pillow and we're like taking pictures, this is so cute. And she's like smiling and all of a sudden she goes whap and hits him on the head. And then she had this confused look on her face like, what just happened? Why did I do that? And she got upset. And it, like there was something like, I, we felt like there's something just like really primitive about like, I was number one mm-hmm. and what is going on? Right. And I think some, in some cases, empathy is the antidote to envy. Right. It seems like you have a tremendous amount of empathy for a lot of the people you've worked with um, and others. 
where that might have been, maybe that's partly what comes from having a tremendous amount of parental love, but being able to accept and uh, feel what other people are feeling. Let them have their joy without it reflecting negatively on yourself, right? So if we could do that in situations where envy might otherwise lead to some malicious or hostile behavior, you might be able to defang it. And it takes courage to look at envy, to listen to it as information, to see where we feel the lack. And then there could be other ways that we could start to build ourselves up without being grasping towards what someone else has. And I think it is no coincidence that across religious traditions, whether it's like in the Ten Commandments or in religious teachings in Buddhism or Hinduism, there's our cultural practices around envy. We know it's a really hot button, important emotion. So from a double-edged sword perspective, all the more reason to pay attention and to try to work with it. In season two of Awaken, Buddhist teacher Sharon Salzberg spoke beautifully about the antidote to envy, which is sympathetic joy. And Dr. Kevin Oxner echoes this. It's such a beautiful thing to really feel joy for someone else, and in so doing, feel joy within yourself. To rise above competition, above envy, and realize that it isn't wanting what someone else has, but it's the actions you take to create a better world that make the lasting impact, and that we're all in this together. Ever connected, and, if we can find it, joyful. This is what the Vairochana Mandala refers to as all-accomplishing wisdom, that achievement and accomplishment is ultimately a collaborative effort. Take a moment now to do that and experience how it feels in your heart, mind, and body to feel truly joyful for someone else. Now for this next emotion, anger. Tracy was actually a guest for the Brainwave series, so we will hear her both in studio and on stage. Anger is an emotion we all experience. It starts very early. One can argue that the baby's first cry is based in anger. How dare you take me out of the warm comfort of my mother's womb? So it's very natural to feel anger. And in many ways, it doesn't take much to get there. Because as Tracy says, Anger is the appraisal that there is uh, an obstacle to something I want, to a desired outcome or goal. And so it's that, un- it's that perception, conscious or unconscious, that there's something blocking what I want. That's the appraisal part. That leads and is linked to the second part of what makes up an emotion, which is an action readiness tendency. For this installment of Brainwave, filmmaker Josh Seftel, Afghani community organizer Bibi Bahrami, ex-Marine Richard Mac McKinney and neuroscientist Tracy Dennis-Tawari are in conversation about anger. The conversation is inspired by Josh Seftel's film, A Stranger at the Gate, which explores how Mac McKinney's PTSD and rage at Muslims is transformed through the care and attention of community organizer Bibi Bahrami. Emotions uh, from either a Buddhist or a scientific perspective Um, are energy. And like any energy, they have to go someplace. And like any energy, they can be transformed. And the notion of a klesha, which is a state that clouds the mind, and these difficult emotions that we have are sort of prime prime examples of kleshas, is that they're they're always double-edged swords. So there's always a flip side. And anger is one of the big ones. Josh has made many films and directed some of her most beloved TV shows. It's his real-life experiences that have fueled a lot of his filmmaking. After 9-11, I saw my Muslim friends facing hatred, and, and I related to it because when I was growing up in upstate New York, I faced anti-Semitism and name-calling and kids calling me Jew kike and throwing pennies at me to remind me that Jews are cheap and someone threw rock the size of a brick through the front window of our home and those memories stayed with me and I connected with my Muslim friends after mm-hmm. 9-11 and so I decided to try to make films for that would tell stories of American Muslims and give a platform to them to share their stories in a way that I thought was more accurate uh, portrayal. 
I was thinking about it the other day in, in relation to anger. And, you know, there's, there's a calm in the storytelling, but I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, this is my anger. This is, um, the anger fuels me. And, and being able to tell a story that, I don't want to swear, but like that's sort of a little bit of an F you mm -hmm. to the haters that says, yeah. try to argue this one. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That is really satisfying yeah. for yes. me. And um, it's fueled by anger. And um, for sure, yeah. it's fueled by anger. Richard Mack McKinney fought in Afghanistan and experienced PTSD, which led to some deep anger and sadness. While anger can sometimes feel empowering, it's one of the most destructive emotions, not only to those outside, but also within. I've never admitted to this, but in, in a lot of ways, my hatred left me vulnerable. I do believe my hatred left me vulnerable to take something else in, maybe, or to replace something. And the thing about this energy of emotions, these powerful, painful, destructive emotions, is that it has to go someplace. And when our impulse is to squash it, avoid it, make it stop, that's when it becomes, that's when it explodes. When I'm in a tough situation, I'm like, what would BB do? Like, you know, and, and like, seriously, like, when I'm on an airplane, you know, I travel a lot, and it's really annoying to be on an airplane. You know, you're squished and you're smushed <laughs> against people. And it's impossible not to sometimes for me to be like, when the person sits next to me and they're pressing on me, to be like, I hate you. Yeah. Like, I, I really, yeah. and, and, uh, and what I've been doing lately, and when I think of BB, is I, I'm just like, I just turn to them and I say, like, hey, how's it going? How you doing? And then, you know, usually they, we have a nice conversation. And, yeah. and those feelings of, like, anger, like, just melt away within seconds, you know, because yes. you start to connect. And then well, maybe he's like a ninja of, of emotion. As <laughs> yeah. you know, he's like this. But what if we thought about all negative emotions like that? What if we actually thought that when we feel them, we're not broken, we're not bad. It's an opportunity. Opportunity. Yeah. What if we that, thought, what if we did that, that all the time? Yeah. What would happen? Bibi Bahrami is a community organizer, and her mission is to bring seemingly disparate communities together. Through knowledge, through shared common experiences, she believes barriers can come down, and what feels like anger can turn into care. She and Mac became very close, and if there's one antidote to anger, it's acceptance and respect. The better we know each other, the, the hate goes away. I respect all people. Respect is one way that I always advise my brothers and sisters in humanity. Please, when you respect others, that respect comes back to you. And when you understand others' needs, that need you can understand. It's about humanity. It's about each other and how we treat each other and how we look at each other. And whether it be the color of someone's skin, whether it be their faith, their gender, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're all in this together because when they fail, we fail, period. I think anger is hard for, for many, many people. And when that anger is channeled in ways that are aggressive, harmful, hostile, it doesn't bear fruit, but when we can channel anger in a way where we, the goals that we're working toward, when you can channel that anger into perhaps more righteous indignation, <laughs> you know, or, you know, working for um, uh, justice or, or some outcome that, you know, requires a lot of fight and a lot of energy, you know, we can, we couldn't do it without without anger and frustration and some of those those um, unpleasant and sort of dist what we find often distasteful um, emotions. As we said earlier, anger is a really powerful energy. And when combined with patience and the ability to see the emotion for what it is and not how it makes you feel, 
It can propel change rather than destruction. The clarity that can arise from practicing patience in these situations is what the mandala refers to as mirror-like wisdom. And this brings us to the last emotion, ignorance. In life, it's where we start and, ironically, it's where we want to get to, at least from the spiritual perspective. From the psychological perspective, however, ignorance is, according to Tracy Dennis Tawari, a state of, a sort of disrupted state of, of learning where there are malfunctions or dysfunctions in how we learn about the world and our place in it. But from the Buddhist perspective, ignorance has an entirely different implication. In the final brainwave episode on emotions represented in the Mandala Lab, Tibetan Buddhist teacher Kenpo Pema Wangdu is in conversation with philosopher of mind, Dr. Adriana Renero. Here, he offers a beautiful insight into ignorance. Ignorance. Uh, I like to start with the word. Uh, uh, in Tibetan, we, we call marikpa. Ma, rikpa. Ma is a negative. Rik means aware, to, uh, to be aware, the rikpa is called conscious, be conscious, be aware. Um, it is a direct translation of a Sanskrit uh, term called vid, to, to, to be aware, vid. Um, our talk is, uh, this whole program is, is in, done in conjunction with the Verichana. The Verichana's name is called Sarva Vid. Sarva is a, a Sanskrit term, or Vid means all, all conscious, all knowing, all aware. For those who are unaware of all things as empty and no self existence, may I purify sins and obscurations and thus place all sentient beings on the stage of Buddhahood. For that purpose, I will practice the yoga of all-aware all aware illuminator. The idea is that there's, there's something to know, is that right? Which means we don't know. Uh, basically, that's, and the teachings of the Buddha, after he became enlightened, he, he uh, taught the first of his teaching called Four Noble Truth. In it, you will find the word he says, this is truth, or the truth of suffering, or truth of cessation of suffering, to the, how we can free uh, from the suffering. This is how we, one should do this and that. And then he has the word, one should know this. So the idea is the, the, the awareness, the knowledge is the key. So the... Um, so the question uh, is, what is ignorance? <laughs> is that right? Uh, ignorance is nothing. It's, it's, it's just simply lack, like what is science. It's just absence of sound. Is that right? And ignorance is the lack of awareness, the lack of knowledge, the lack of wisdom, how to cook. Is that right? The basic things, how to talk to each other, how to think thoughts. Uh, something that we go and we go about our daily business and live a life and have a good life, hopefully, and live long and die, versus what is the underlining of all of these things. There are two factors. So we have here the word ignorance should be treated as two kinds. The innate, inborn things we think the way things are and we pursue that level. And then the culture, religion, philosophy, which says, oh, this is what we think is right and we should follow. Ignorance is a suspension of judgment. It's pure awareness. It's seeing things as they are. And with that comes a liberation, a freedom. When we think of babies and the way they seem to see the world, the vision is unclouded, presence with exactly what is, when it is. And that's why it's where we start, and it's hopefully where we get to. Again, Kempo Pema Wangdu. 
the freedom lies in connecting to the nature that nature says is pure and perfect, organic, interdependent. And then there's nothing absolute to hold on to, which we call it emptiness. And whoever understands that, they free themselves. There they find the joys and the happiness of the things they have. And the joys and the happiness, and they're content with the things they don't have. Either way, you gain the wisdom. But uh, in fact, so many of our sufferings are actually uh, is created by not knowing what is happiness. That's mm. funny. While we are obsessed with the overcoming happiness, the uh, suffering, and then running so-called, so, uh, running after so-called happiness, and yet we are running after the very misery and suffering, never knowing that 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 it is what, what we're doing is is just exactly the opposite. Dr. Adriana Renero is a philosopher of mind as well as one of cognitive science. So she looks at what some of our most revered philosophers have reflected on. In this case, Aristotle and Socrates. Aristotle, in the book first of the Metaphysics, says uh, all human beings desire by nature to know. And also he says there is like a capacity of wonder. So in some way, this uh, wanting to know starts when we wonder about things. So as Plato says in the Apology of uh, Socrates, that he is uh, the wise person, the wisest person, but he admits his own ignorance. So in order to know, it seems that we have to be, or to start first by a state of wonder. Your spiritual temple starts precisely where you are. No matter who you are, just it's absolutely doesn't matter. And and that too, good health and peace of mind. The basic function. Because unhappiness is not a privilege. It's not a right either. It's a dangerous. It's, it's very harmful. And all the uh, uh, harms we do each other, uh, uh, beside the ignorance, mm-hmm. uh, that's a given. <laughs> Uh, unhappiness right behind it. Underlining violence, all the bad things we do, uh, anything, bad words, bad thoughts, bad emotions, whatever, anger, there is, there is underlining unhappiness, meaning our mind is not peaceful. So there's an there actual chain reaction, and you can observe yourself. You will never say bad things when you are happy. You never think bad thoughts when you are happy. When, you're, uh, when, you, uh, when I say bad things, think bad thoughts, you will see right there, right there if you look at yourself and be aware of it, you bring the awareness, you see there is some kind of unhappiness is there to, to generate this kind of emotion. The awareness, that's what it's all about. It's nearly impossible to eradicate these feelings, pride, attachment, envy, anger, ignorance, and nor do we want to. They give us very useful information and energy. And when we bring awareness to them, we start to appreciate the interdependence, the interconnectedness of all things. That lends our awareness a quality we could even begin to call love. We can come to know these challenging emotions better, be in deeper conversation with them, and make choices that support ourselves and our communities. This is a bonus episode of Awaken, where we've taken excerpts from the live Brainwave series and interwoven them with insights from psychologist and neuroscientist Tracy Dennis Tawari. The voices you heard here are Tracy Dennis Tawari, psychologist and neuroscientist Dr. Philip Corlett, performer Jean Gray, comedian Janine Garofalo, psychologist and neuroscientist Dr. Kevin Oxner, psychologist and neuroscientist Dr. Hedy Kober, filmmaker Joshua Seftel, community organizer Bibi Bahrami, 
former Marine Richard Mack McKinney, Tibetan Buddhist and teacher Kenpo Pema Wangdu, and philosopher of cognitive science Dr. Adriana Ranero. To learn more about Brainwave, please visit rubinmuseum.org slash brainwave. You'll be able to hear all the talks there. Awaken is produced by the Rubin Museum of Art with Don Eshelman, Tenzin Gellick, Jamie Lawyer, Christina Watson, and Tim McHenry in collaboration with Sound Made Public, including me, Tani Katenjian, Emma Vecchioni, Philip Wood, Claire Mullen, and Jeremiah Moore. Awaken Season 2 is part of the Rubin Museum's Mandala Lab, a multi-year initiative generously supported by 28 donors and sponsors. Lead support for Brainwave is provided by the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Additional support is provided by Jerry Arstrom and Cheryl Henson. To hear all seven episodes of Season 2, go to rubinmuseum.org slash podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can continue the conversation by following us on Instagram at Ruben Museum. And if you're enjoying this podcast, leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends about the conversations you just heard. Awaken is inspired by the Mandala Lab at the Ruben Museum, an immersive space for social, emotional, and ethical learning. Come explore the lab in New York City or in one of the installations that is traveling the world. Visit rubamuseum.org to learn more about the museum and about the art, cultures, and ideas of Himalayan regions. We look forward to seeing you.